Hi, I'm Murdoch Gaddy, and thanks for listening to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. The Rate of Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of the leading managers in wealth management. In today's rockcast, Romano Salatena, one of the portfolio managers from Katana Asset Management, joins us to discuss their Australian equity fund. If you haven't heard of Katana, they're an Australian-based fund manager who've been managing money since 2005. We sat down with Romano late last year to record this rockcast, so I thought I'd give an updated insight on how the fund has been travelling using their January 23 fund fact sheet. The fund since inception has returned on average 10.13%, over 5 years it's 12.36%, 3 years 14.78%, 1 year 15.41% and it's up 5.58% in the last month. What I find quite remarkable about what the team has achieved over these years was put into a good article written by Tom Richardson from the Australian Financial Review. The AFR highlighted in the top 10 Aussie equity funds in 2022, Gatana ranked 7th. Interestingly, it was the only top 10 manager in 2022 to be also ranked in the top 10 over 5 years at 2nd, whilst being ranked 4th over 3 years, which is quite an achievement. Romano also dives into the inner workings of the fund, where he thinks markets are going, and how the fund is positioned to both protect and grow the portfolio with the upcoming volatility we're seeing. I really enjoyed hearing how Romano and the teams process very substantially to some other managers. As an example, if they don't like an asset class, I don't know, say the banks, they will just not allocate whilst other managers just hold the assets and reduce the overall weighting. I found this approach quite interesting as a tactical method to deal with the volatility we have been seeing in markets, especially in the past five years. So with that being said, I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you have any questions, keep the feedback coming and you can reach me at mgatti at ywm.com.au or reach out to your wealth management. So I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did, and let's get into it. Romano Salatena, welcome to The Rate of Change with your course management. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Fantastic. So why don't we start things off by telling us a little bit about how you got into financial markets and a little bit about your background? Sure. So yeah, I did a um, commerce degree, uh, major information systems, worked seven years as a computer programmer analyst. Really enjoyed that. Did a postgrad in finance, and then made my way into um, stockbroking for many years. And then 2003, we started the process to set up Katana Asset Management, and that was a two-year process. And put out our first fund in December 2005, January 2006. Right. So, how does the IT component play into markets? Yeah, there's a lot of um, really nice aspects to that. The you know, in terms of the, the math side, the the programming side, the sequential analytical side, I think that plays into a really good part of uh, funds management. Uh, of course, funds management is part art, part science. So I think part of that, you know, the, I think the left and right brain are constantly in conflict with each other in funds management, um, and uh, and you know that's that's the case. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of more leaning towards that analytical sort of problem-solving phase, but in funds management, you don't have the luxury to get all the information or you don't have the luxury to have all the time. So you've constantly got to be making decisions based on imperfect data uh, and imperfect timeframes. Yeah, right. So moving into the 
fund Katana. Can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the fund, uh, you know, how it's currently been performing and essentially what you're trying to achieve? So firstly, we're very pleased with performance. We're outperforming the benchmark over every time frame for 17 years and what that gives us confidence in is that there's something sustainable in what we're doing um, that enables us to achieve over not just, you know, a front-ended result or a back-ended result or in, in the middle, but over every time frame, we look at one, three, five, seven years, whatever. So that gives us some confidence that what we're doing is is sustainable and replicable, and, and that's uh, that's an important thing from our end. What we've tried to do is deconstruct the funds management process. So I'll put something to you which sounds rather ludicrous, but if you didn't like a company but you didn't dislike it, if you're a typical fund manager, you generally have neutral weighting. So let's say you don't like the big banks, but you don't dislike them. So your starting position is to have about 25% exposure to the banking sector. Now, for us, that seems a bit ludicrous. And if you looked at it from through the lens of any other industry, you'd think that is ludicrous. If we don't like something, but we don't dislike it, our starting position is zero. And then we'll add anything that we believe adds genuine alpha to the process. So let's go into that a little bit more. Can you give our listeners an understanding of what's in the portfolio? When you, when you say you're looking at the Australian market, what, what does that exactly mean? Yeah, so we're exceptionally risk averse. There's a lot of things that we won't do in our portfolio, which we, we feel confident we could make money out of. But capital preservation, first and foremost, is at the core of what we do. Secondly, we're very um, diverse. So... Typically, we hold 55 to 65 stocks in the portfolio at any given time. Right at the moment, we're at 42 companies, uh, which is the lowest we've been in, in probably a decade. And there's some specific reasons why that is so low at the moment. We then start to look at things on an alpha basis. So we're not after beta performers. We're, we're any Every stock in our portfolio, we're high conviction on. Clearly, we get some wrong. We get a lot wrong but we're high conviction. So we're only putting stocks in the portfolio um, that we believe can outperform the index. Now we understand that we have to be benched according to the all odds accumulation index so people have something to assess our performance on, but we don't let that constrain the way we think as, as managers. We don't think, right, if we're neutral the banks, we hold 25% exposure. We think if we're neutral the banks, we hold zero exposure. And then if we actually think the banks can outperform this stage of the cycle, we'll, we'll weight it upwards. And, you know, if you look over the last 16 years at graphs of our sector exposures, you see that our exposure to the to the banking index has gone from minus 20% to the index to sort of plus 10%. So it can rotate around quite aggressively. So how much cash, is, if, you, if you're only holding 40-odd companies right now, what is that as a percentage? Yeah, so we're holding um, at the moment a cash is just under 35%. And that's, you know, in our mandate, we can go to 80%, but 35% realistically is sort of the upper threshold of where we like to see things. Okay. So let's go back to the banks. You said if you're not going to, if you're going to be neutral or something, you just don't hold it at all. So what percentage of the portfolio is in banks right now? Approximately would be looking at around about 10%, and that's weighted towards Macquarie Bank um, and uh, and one of the regionals, which I think is offering particularly good value at the moment, uh, BOQ. Given, given the work they've done on ME Bank and some other things that are going to add as good tailwinds, we suspect, for them. Um, and then we've got some, including that uh, basket, of course, is other financials. So we've got some miscellaneous exposure to uh, Pendle under takeover and some bits and pieces. 
So regarding market cap, um, you know, on the on the ASX, do you can you go anywhere? Like, can you go small caps, or is it predominantly the the top end of town, or what do you generally look at? The very vast majority of what we do is in the big end of the market. Um, we're not against taking the odd smaller position uh, if we think it's got the potential to grow into a larger company. But what we do do is we absolutely respect what it means to take a position in a smaller cap company. You know, smaller caps by definition um, have little or no research coverage, have less corporate governance, have less diversification, have less track record, uh, and of course, most importantly, have less liquidity. So, you know, first and foremost, uh, we want to make sure we're preserving our capital. They really are like lobster pots, very easy to get into, very easy to get out of the old um, the old cliche there. Um, so, you know, whereas we'll trade, if we've got line of sight on Westpac Bank, for a trade, we've got imminent triggers and we, we can understand line of sight for why we think we can make a trade. We'll, we'll trade Westpac Bank up and down for 10% day in, day out. But if we're looking at a smaller cap company or a mid cap, uh, we really have to be seeing 50 to 70% um, with a lot of clarity before we'd be prepared to take on that risk. I really wanted to go down a different path and keep digging into these uh, companies. But I'm, you said something before that you happily trade in and out on the day. Uh, is this a high touch port- portfolio, are, or you are you do you have a core, as in you hold like a sixty percent and then you trade around the edges? Like, what's exactly your style of investing? Yeah, it, yeah it, on the day might might have been a bit of a, uh, a misunderstanding there. So we, if we see Westpac an opportunity there, we'll trade that up and down. It's unlikely to be within a day, but certainly over weeks and months there. So. You know, we've got companies that we've been trading now for close on 20 years and our weighting in those companies go from 0 to 3%. 3% for us is exceptionally, exceptionally high conviction. In our, we're in our 17th year operation now and we've had on three occasions, we've, ha- we've been over 5% individual stock weighting. Um, normally, if we like something, it's, it's 2%. If we're exceptionally high conviction, it's 3%. Uh, and I said there's only been three occasions we've gone above 5%. So that's with the specific companies. Now, as we discuss a lot in the rate, rate of change with macroeconomics, you know, the, at the top level, what's the actual underlying, right? And one of the things we discuss always with portfolio management is how much money you should have in a particular asset class or a subcategory. So you say 3% for a specific holding in a bank, but do you have parameters on, say, um, the banking sector? Do you even touch on resources? Like, and how much would you allocate as a maximum to a particular sector of the ASX? We tend to find that, that nature takes care of most of those questions. We don't let artificial constraints drive what we do, but we are respectful and we do analyse and understand it. So our, our analyst, Hendrik, he works constantly to look at portfolio correlation. So he's taking a, a separate view as to what we're, the three portfolio managers are doing in terms of how we're constructing the portfolio, and he's running an overlay to make sure that we understand exactly what risk we're taking on, and then we make a decision collectively whether or not we take that risk on or not. Stocks, to, to get back to the heart of your question, I mean, a, a holding in our portfolio can come in one of two ways. It can come in from a top-down uh, response or a bottom-up response. So top-down is identifying a macro, identifying a thematic that we're we believe has got you know substantial um, momentum in it, and then trying to find the best ways to play that. Or on a bottom up, maybe where we're, we're seeing an exceptional management team, we've seen um, a particular um, growth number, a particular valuation that just looks too compelling, and we'll start our work from the bottom up. And so, 
quite often we, we find that a lot of the best ideas meet in the middle somewhere and quite often we do find that we we will be overweight. Like for right at the moment we're, we're um, overweight materials. Okay, That's a conscious decision we've made right here, right now. But it's not it's not driven from a macro. It's driven from a bottom-up thematic. Well, let's, let's look at some of the companies when you say in materials. So can you give a couple of examples? So right now our largest holding is Mineral Resources. Um, that's one of the three companies I mentioned that has been above 5%. We first started trading Mineral Resources in 2006. Uh, when it listed, and we've been trading that stock for the last 16, 17 years continuously. Um, if you look at the beginning of the year, our weighting would have been uh, close on, if not zero percent, um, and now our weighting is uh, is close to seven percent due to some very strong stock performance, and that's the absolute upper limit. We, you know, we don't sleep well at night even having it there, but because we've got probably the most detailed model in mineral resources in Australia, and there's not too many stocks we could claim that for. Um, because we've got such a high understanding of that company, having traded it you know, in depth for so many years, we understand uh, what that means. So why are we in mineral resources right at the moment? The main reason being the lithium thematic. You know, It's very hard to play the, the electrification, decarbonisation theme in Australia. Um, the best way to play it, we think at the moment, is still lithium and copper. Uh, when we look at lithium, the two best stocks are mineral resources and, and Orchem. And uh, both of those are, are prominent holdings at the moment. Do you own any other exposure to lithium or superconductor material or anything equivalent for vanadium? Yeah, so not we, we haven't gone down into the more um, niche metals. The reason we haven't done that is because we do find it hard. When there's not a deep liquid market, it's, it is very hard to understand the, the true um, supply-demand dynamics there. Uh, graphite's an example. I mean, we did a lot of work on Syrah at forty cents and, and opted against it, you know. And, and obviously, it's it's increased multiple since then. I know there's another fund manager that really likes Syrah, and it is a good company. But the reason we've done that is because, you know, when we look at the the existence of graphite, graphite is is um, in abundance globally, uh, in every jurisdiction. So you know, it'll be lumpy. Yes, as you get the supply demand, you know, the demand left increase until they, let, they bring another mine, and then there'll be too much supply, and the price get depressed. And so you'll have that supply demand, you know, dynamic. But you know, we struggle to understand um, longer term how there's going to be any shortage there. The flip side is you look at something like copper. You know, we think that copper. You know, Doctor Copper, the the best indicator of of um, the economic cycle. We really see that as being something that's being neglected, and that's one where we can have, we can do an enormous amount of analysis because there is there are so many data points, and we can really understand what that looks like. So we've been rebuilding our position in a couple of copper companies. Uh, again, very hard one to play because, you know, up until recently there was there was four or five ASX listed companies that there were dedicated copper producers, and of those, a couple were sub substandard. So it is a hard space to play, but. In Australia, if you want to play that thematic, you don't have a lot of options. So I'm not too sure if you said it. How? What percentage of the portfolio is in materials, roughly? I'd have to look at that. I'm guessing it's probably somewhere around about the 15 to 20% mark at the moment. Okay. Maybe closer to 15. Okay. So you just just so we uh, everyone can understand what they're saying, they're, they're talking about the maximum holding they would have in a particular company is 3%, but yeah, you're very comfortable if you see a macroeconomic thematic um, occurring to go very heavy in a particular area of the portfolio. That's exactly our, our secret source, is being able to have that confidence to understand why you up weight a sector versus down weighting a sector. 
uh, and then taking that to a level that you know some managers may not be prepared to do. Some managers may not be prepared to step away from the herd. Still very very risk averse. Still very low risk. But you know, as an example, having you know maybe five percent in in the big banks versus 25 percent uh, market weighting. I mean that's a, that's a big step away from the herd there. But right at the moment, we think that's the right move to make, as we have done the past decade a couple of times. Well, let's dust off the crystal ball and have a conversation with uh, on the thematic side with macroeconomics. What hurdles do you see coming towards, I suppose, the end of the year, early next year, and say sectors you just want to completely avoid? And where do you see opportunity? I think it's probably the mo- on that first question. It's probably the most challenging market we've seen in a you know in a very long time, and that's why we're close to our our maximum desired cash weighting of 35%. I think at every at every juncture, at every turn, we see um, we see threats, we see dangers, whether it's uh, QT now ramping up to 95 billion US a month from 1 September, um, whether it's, you know, uh, the, the Fed's uh, rhetoric now has notably changed, uh, whether it's what we're seeing in China with um, with with the property crisis there and um, the, the you know uh, focus on COVID lockdowns, um, you know whether it's we've seen some of the, the supply um, bottlenecks, uh, whether we see what you know I think if you look over the last couple of decades, people probably haven't realised just how much the offshoring to China and technology has held inflation in check. I mean, effectively, every every major company's moved their manufacturing hub offshore to China, and in doing so, they've reduced the, the cost of, of doing business, and added in the uh, the big uplift from technology productivity. We've seen a massive, probably once in a century, deflationary event. Now, there's still some more incremental gains to to flow through in terms of um, the technology side. But on the other side, I think, you know, we're going to see now deglobalisation. We're going to see nationalism come back to the fore. And with it, that's going to see a long term. It's not going to affect us today and tomorrow, but over the next couple of decades or the next decade or so, we're going to see um, the capacity to um, deflate costs by offshoring production. We're going to see that start to, to sort of work, at, work as a headwind as opposed to a tailwind. So we see a lot of um, potential threats. The problem we have is that it's almost consensus positioning, is that every, every person to a, to a T is saying that this market has to roll over, that we have to see a sizable correction. And, of course, if, everyone, if everyone's positioned for that, then they've done the selling, they've got the cash in the sidelines, they're mentally prepared for that. And so the, the path of least resistance is probably more likely up than down. So this is a conundrum we face at the moment in Katana is that we can see if in six months' time you look back and said, right, we've just had a, a you know, huge correction, everyone will say, well, Blind Freddy could see that because, you know, all the things were lining up there. Um, but the flip side is, is as, as I said before, markets are part science, part art. And the artiness is saying it's very interesting that consensus positioning is to the downside. So where, you know, that's that's kind of now in Katana, we are so risk averse, we will still play that even though we don't like playing with the herd. Uh, we'll still run with the herd for the time being. Um, but we have got one on the fact that we could all on mass be wrong at the moment. Well, okay. So do you run a long short book or is it long only? Long only. Long only. Okay. So 
in order to protect yourself, you have the capacity to go to 80% cash. You're currently in a high cash position right now. So what sectors of the market are you looking to deploy that cash? And if you don't deploy that cash, um, holding that amount of cash, does that have a major impact on returns? Yeah, look, I mean, our returns, we're sort of number three in Australia over three years, number three over five years in the Morningstar tables at the moment. So, you know, and that's including our cash drag. We generally run a 15 to 35% cash through the cycle. So even with that cash drag, we've been able to get those numbers and, and we don't think we'll change that philosophy. You can't hold 35% cash too long if the market starts to rip and, and continue to perform. So we're very, you know, cognizant of that. Um, but, you know, right at the moment, we think that we're – you know, we're going to buy ourselves a couple of months. We're going to reassess this at the end of October and and try and get an understanding of whether or not we're seeing some of these drivers play out. And if we're not, then we'll continue to hold our, our nerve. But I think this time, once we do see some of the factors play out, even if we haven't seen the correction, you know, the market's anticipating, um, we will look to, to reverse that position potentially. In terms of sectors, what do you like at the moment? Look, the reason we've got 42, 43 stocks, the lowest on record just about for at least a decade, is because we are finding it very hard to find sectors we like. We can pretty much make a very compelling case as to why you do not want to be in most sectors at the moment. So the, the handful of sectors we have confidence in still, you know, we've got a sp- specific theme around you know EV decarbonisation, which are you know, two sides of the same coin. So we're still looking to, to add exposure there. Very hard to do in Australia. Obviously, we've got the lithium and the copper and so forth. Very hard above and beyond that. We've actually added a, a modest position in a global ETF, the HGN.AXW, which is gives us exposure, you know, 20 of the best hydrogen companies globally, um, which is in our mandate being an ASX-listed ETF. Uh, beyond that, we, we, we still like the LNG thematic. We think people have completely missed what's happening there at the moment. It's structural, but look also at pricing, you know, through the cycle – LNG runs at sort of seven to eight bucks in MMBTU, and you know it's been as high as eighty recently, but it's it's sort of plateauing around forty to fifty dollars MMBTU now. That's only for spot sales, and that's probably about ten to fifteen percent of most producers, you know, production. But it's still a um, it's still there's still windfall cargoes there. So I also think what's happening there is going to set up Santos and Woodside in a good position for further um, project um, fids. And that's going to set them up globally. So I think we're seeing a structural change there. And I also think, you know, it's, it's very niche, but I do think that Metcoal has to has to play some catch-up. I've been in markets for 30 years and I've never seen thermal coal trade at a premium to Metcoal. At the moment, your thermal coal markets out in Newcastle are sort of running at sort of 430 to 450 US a tonne and, and your spot Metcoal is running at sort of, you know, 250, 270 a tonne. So what we're going to see is, despite a lot of the rhetoric, you can there can be substitution taking place. We will see some of the semi-soft getting um, spat into some of the thermal power producers. Even if it's only 10% of the current Met coal market, that's going to create a huge deficit. And when you've got that huge price differential, it makes it, makes it worthwhile doing that. So we expect to see thermal coal come back a bit, Met coal rally a bit. Uh, and so I think the the Met coal producers out there are in a very good position. Coronado is a company, for example, we started rebuilding. That'll be back in our top ten soon. So currently, as it stands, let's let's discuss um, LNG and gas. So we're talking gas shortages. It's all over the papers. Um, East, Eastern Eastern Shore, you know, there's uh, stuff in the Northern Territory as well. What's your current position there? Do you see that with all this push for supply that there still will be a gas shortage, or do you think that there is enough um, demand out there? 
Look, there's, if you look firstly domestically in Australia, there's no doubt we've got you know more than enough gas to, to, to feed our nation for the next 100 years. The problem is you need to have some state governments who shall remain nameless um, realise that they actually need to um, you know allow these projects to proceed. Otherwise, it's no good importing you know huge amounts of gas from Queensland and um, you know and 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 keeping your gas moratoriums on in uh, onshore and offshore in, in your state. We ne- we need to see a more balanced um, ESG discussion around some of these um, some of these projects. I think what people fail to realise is that gas is absolutely one hundred percent part of the transition to uh, renewables. You don't have renewables without gas. If if um, even with, with you know battery technology is still some way off, but even when that arrives, you still need to be able to turn on and off peaking uh, power, and, and to be able to do it on scale. And you can't do it at the coal plants. I think a lot of the problems we're having with coal-fired power plants at the moment, having so many problems, is because people are trying to use them as peaking plants at, at, at some level. You've really got to get to the stage where you have enough gas you can turn on and off as you need to, uh, and that's a big part of the solution. Over the short to medium term, what we're seeing obviously in Russia is a watershed moment. That is a structural change. You are, Even if the war ends tomorrow, you're not going to have um, Europe go back and depend on 40% of their gas from, uh, from a nation such as Russia. That boat has sailed. We are now going to see a paradigm shift in terms of how they see their energy security in the future. And so that has big implications for uh, the Middle East, you know, Qatar and so forth, and also for Australia, for Canada and the US there. And so with the portfolio on the energy, how are you playing that thematic? You don't have a lot of choices in Australia. I mean, you know, all search has been taken over by Santos and Woodside's taken over BHP Petroleum's assets. So it's really just those two big boys if you want to get serious exposure. Uh, and we're, we're in both those companies Um still at the moment and, and have done well out of them, but we still see a lot more upside from here. And then, of course, you look at, you know, as much as I hate to say it's a dirty word, but some of the thermal coal uh, and met coal players, I think that's that's a reasonable way to look. We're doing a lot of work on some of the Tier 2 players. We have been in Caroon in a, in a good size way. We're out at the moment, but reassessing whether we, we need to rebuild that position. Uh, you know, doing work on Beach. Beach has been a big position in the past, not right at the moment, but, again, doing the work on that. Um, so just sort of st- sticking to that top end of town where, you know, there's enough value, enough growth um, to be able to play the theme that uh, which is which is the main part of the picture here. So with the size of the fund, um, a lot of fund managers always discuss, um, you know, constraints with how much money they want to uh, manage because the, the strategy which works at a particular level might not work at another level, right? So how much money is currently in the fund and, you know, what would your cap be? If so there is a cap, we're running just under 100 million, and our cap, we think our first milestone where we'd actually look to see how our performance is being affected is 800 million. Uh, we've, we, you know, that bench benches on five percent of our smallest holding effectively. Um, you know, g- given that you know, mineral resources, most of what we do is ASX 50, ASX 20, so really your capacity to upsize your positions is not limited. Um, but we, we would think at 800 million, we've, we've agreed to take a, if we're fortunate enough to get there, uh, take a deep breath and, and do some work on whether or not that's impacting our performance. Right, right at the moment, I think 27, 28% of the money that we manage is our own money. So, you know, we're very heavily aligned and, and you know, the same unit class as every other investor. And what we don't want to do is, is impact anyone's performance, let alone our own. So, you know, we are conscious of that, but we think what we're doing is, is replicable up to quite a, quite a scale. 
So you mentioned that a lot of money is in the fund. Another question we always like to ask to see exactly how your interests are aligned with running the portfolios. How are you guys remunerated? How's how's the structure of that look? Yeah, our, our primary remuneration comes from compounding our own money. You know, we started this journey in two thousand six with eighteen million, and we're compounding it alongside everyone else. So, you know, how we end up our journey in this life um, will be determined by how we continue to compound. Uh, the Katana portfolio, and that's how we think first and foremost. Above and beyond that, we do run a ten percent performance fee. Uh, that's for for any performance above the All Lords Accumulation Index with a high water mark. Um, so it's sort of the gold standard in performance fees. And then each of the portfolio managers' performance fees based purely on the amount of alpha they've contributed to the portfolio. So, for example, if if I've had a great year. And, you know, but I haven't contributed to the team. The other two portfolio managers haven't delivered. Then we might, I might have a great outperformance, but as a team we may not outperform, so I might get 100% of zero, which doesn't quite cut it for me. Uh, flip side is, you know, in a lot of teams you either get the, the autocrats or you get passengers. If you've got passengers in the team, the team might have a great year and, and outperform, but if I haven't contributed to that alpha, then I'll get 0% of a big performance fee. So, again, that doesn't inspire me. So we've got that that approach right where we're inspired as a team to work together to get the biggest combined pull we can but then also above and beyond that I want to contribute to the team and apart from that we've all got big egos and you know we all like to try and uh, outperform each other how many in the team now so there's there's three portfolio managers and, and Hendrik they're our analyst and that's the the, the crux of the uh, the investing team is this the only portfolio current strategy running we are you looking at doing another strategy or Look, not at the moment. I mean, we don't, you know, we, we would love to set up an international fund, but the reality is, is we've got no strate- competitive advantage. You know, we've got 26 to 30 years muscle memory on the ASX. You can pick out any stock in the ASX 500. One of us will know something about it. So, you know, we, that's our, our competitive advantage on, on the Australian landscape. An international fund would be, would be lovely to do, but we wouldn't be able to give out performance to our, to our investors. Um, in terms of other strategies, you know, we don't think in terms of long short. Our brains aren't wide that way. Uh, we think long only. We, we look for great companies, great management teams, great business models. It's how we think. Um, you know, I think if I had a shorted a company last, company would have shorted would have been after pay at fifteen dollars and it went to one hundred and fifty. So, you know, it it just shows that you know we're not wide in that way. We know what we're doing. We've just you know we've got a long term track record. We just need to keep doing more of what we're doing. Um, incrementally improve, you know, evolutionary rather than revolutionary. We don't need to change what we're doing. We, we just need to keep doing it and doing more of it and getting slightly better each year. So the reason why we call this the rate of change is, as everyone now knows, uh, when you're looking at portfolios, uh, markets are always continuously changing, right? And some asset classes do well or poorly given the conditions between growth, inflation, um, stagflation and deflation, right? So where... How do you see your fund helping clients and investors, you know, in the current thematics of the market? Well, it's a, that's a tough question. But, I mean, I guess we see it – we see first and foremost um, we want to just maximise our risk-adjusted returns. So, you know, whatever whatever the underlying economic um, so, uh, drivers are, we're trying to maximise our returns to those drivers. Sometimes that means we go more cash, sometimes we go less cash, sometimes we go growth assets, sometimes we go value assets, sometimes we go uh, inflationary winners like, you know, energy and, and materials, other times we go recessionary winners like your defensives. So we, so we think that 
through the equity markets, you can play any thematic uh, or any potential economic outcome, but you have to be able to change rapidly and pivot, identify where you got it wrong and, and always have a plan like – you know, our plans are invariably wrong, but it's in the fact that they're wrong that we know where we're at. And so right now we've got a plan for how we think the, uh, the, the future looks. And as that unfolds and will be different to our plan, we know it will be, but it'll, it'll at least give us the, the, the signposts as to where we are and, and, and how we need to pivot. question I've been asking everyone recently is uh, how high do you think these interest rates are going to go? Do you think that the central banks are running a – break everything campaign or do you think this is a tactical move and then they'll turn the tap back on? What do you think? Well, I think the first thing people have to realise is that this cycle is different, right? In the last 10 years or so, uh, we have had a genuine power put. We have had a Fed put because there's been no damage to Main Street. Like if, if Main Street versus Wall Street, Main Street's going to win every time. The politician's going to protect Main Street every time. If we go back to, say, 2018 to the taper tantrum, what we saw there was Wall Street – had a hissy fit, market dropped, I think it was 18% in, in a very short time frame. And so the Fed blinked and reversed its course on interest rates when it should have actually maintained its course. It did that because there was no cost to Main Street. There was no, you know, inflation wasn't out of control. Inflation wasn't eating into the savings and the lifestyles and, and the um, uh, living standards of, of the average person. So it could get away with doing that. At that stage is when it really should have held its nerve and, and held course. Fast forward now and we see that Main Street is getting seriously damaged. Inflation is the number one um, – so inflation has the, the hardest hit on the, the lower to middle class earners, okay, the cost of living. So, so the f- central banks globally will now work more than ever to ensure that inflation does not get out of control. And if you go back to pre the Volcker era, you'll see that – there's a 15-year period of inflation sort of sitting at 4 to 5% level because they didn't get out the big hammer and whack it on the head. They need to stop this dead in its tracks. They will now do whatever it takes. And if, and if Wall Street has a, a meltdown, that's just collateral damage as, as how they see it now. So we have fundamentally moved into new era. And, you know, don't fight the Fed. It's the, the oldest cliche going around and, and people continue to ignore it at their own peril. Um, how high interest rates go? Look, I think they'll go too far before they, because they are a, uh, it is a blunt instrument. It does take a number of months for it to flow through. So I do think it'll go too far. I do say that we have more leverage in the system now than at any time in history. So in theory, the interest rates should not need to go as high as they have in past cycles because the amount of leverage and the amount of impact the transmission mechanisms through the system. So. Answer, uh, they've got more to go, um, higher than we, higher than they, they should, um, but not as high as in past cycles. So if an event does occur and there is a big drawdown in the market, what would be a couple of companies or maybe a particular part of the market in the Australian space that you'd be very happy to see come back down to favourable levels? Look, there's, there's just we, we've got any given time a couple hundred companies that we're, that we're close to. Um, between the, the four of us, uh, there's you know there's over forty stocks in the portfolio. I think if you if you were to see the meltdown that everyone's forecasting, and, and if it was to occur, I think you know we would start to do a couple of things. We'd start to um, reduce our exposure to defensives because they would have played their part, um, and they're going to going to have uh, headwinds moving forward. 
Uh, and then we'd start to look at we've got a we've got a checklist of how we see the um, recovery stocks playing out, you know, consumer discretionary, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we need to just see the different signposts and the different milestones before we start to to put in place um, those exposures. But you know, if once we do see a serious correction, we think that it's run its course, then we want to look at recovery stocks. What last thoughts do you want to leave our listeners and investors with? Gee, I don't know. Uh, invest in Katana. Um, look, it's it's. I think right at the moment we are seeing um, the the most uncertain period we've seen in in more than five years, possibly a decade. I think that you know if you're a more aggressive investor and manager, you take advantage of that uncertainty. You know we always say that you can't get a great company at a great price with certainty. You've got to give up one of those three things. You either give up a great price, you give up a great company, you give up certainty. You can't get all three. So, you know, if you're a more risk-aggressive individual or fund, then you could certainly use that uncertainty to get a great company at a great price. The way we're wide is, you know, capital preservation is first and foremost in everything we do and think. So we're going to sit back and wait. We're going to buy ourselves some time, um, get through these next couple of months and see how things unfold and then make a decision about how the future looks. If investors want to get in touch with you and learn more about the Katana strategy, where should they go? Uh, www.katanaasset.com Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us on The Rate of Change and I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Murdoch. Been a pleasure. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website, www.yorkwealth.com.au.